This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Among the many reasons offered to explain the rising costs of healthcare is the rising price of drugs. While free market forces tend to drive consumer prices downward, drug prices seem to perpetually rise. How does a healthcare system in search of cost containment manage both to incentivize new d- drug discovery while also contain the costs of these new drugs? The current system uses rebates paid by drug producers to health plan providers as cost-saving incentives to choose their newest drug. These rebates are negotiated by the health plan's pharmaceutical benefit managers, or PBMs. The greater the rebate, the better the PPM. But if PBMs are measured and paid more to negotiate larger rebates, the producer may respond by raising list price and rebate size for the benefit of both themselves and the PBMs. This complex incentive structure can ultimately lead to doctors prescribing drugs based on rebates rather than value. What can consumers and their doctors do within this complex incentive structure to ensure that each of us can have the drug that is best for him at the best price? To help us understand the complexity of the pharmaceutical payment system is Dr. Bill Smith, visiting fellow in life sciences at Pioneer Institute. Bill has recently published a working paper entitled Growing drug rebates hurt both consumers and our healthcare system. He is here to share with us his finding on how drug rebates work and how they affect which drugs we are prescribed and how much we will pay. Bill has spent 10 years at Pfizer as Vice President of Public Affairs and Policy. He has been President of a medical device company, and he has had senior staff positions in the U.S. Congressional House Leadership, the White House, and in the Governor's Office in Massachusetts. Bill earned his PhD at the Catholic University of America and a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University. When we return, I'll be joined by Dr. Bill Smith. Okay, we're back. This is Joe Salvaggi, host of Hubwonk, and I'm now joined by Bill Smith of Pioneer Institute. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Bill, I, I really enjoyed reading your re- research paper on drug rebates. Uh, it is a fairly complex concept, particularly uh, for those who are not familiar with this industry. So for the benefit of our listeners, uh, let's start with some basics. Uh, who are the actors? Uh, let, let's start at the beginning. I'm prescribed a drug by my doctor. Who are the actors involved in me going over to the, the pharmacist and, uh, and, and going out and buying that drug? Yeah, Joe, I think the average consumer would be shocked at how this system works because it's a little bit like a rug bazaar. Um, but basically, you know, if you're prescribed a drug and you, you have private health insurance, um, your health insurance company hires what's called a pharmaceutical benefit manager, a pharmacy benefit manager, to decide which drugs are going to be purchased by the health plan. Um, and decide which drugs are going to be preferred, which drugs are going to have high copays, which drugs are going to have low copays. They'll make all the decisions about the, the drug formulary. So let's, let's kind of walk through in a simple way how this works. Say you're a drug manufacturer, you just invented a new drug for arthritis. It's not a revolutionary drug, it's not a cure, it's a little marginally better than the drugs that are out there currently. 
how do you get that drug purchased by health plans, by your private health plans? Well, the way you do it is you go to the pharmacy benefit manager who represents, say, millions of patients. They may represent multiple health plans, not just one. And you say to them, our drug is priced at $1,000 a month, but if you can get us to 30% market share, if 30% of the patients in the health plans that you represent start using our drug, we will rebate back half the price. We will rebate back $500 out of the thousand. And you sign a contract with the pharmacy benefit manager who says, okay, we'll get you to 30% market share and then we'll send you an invoice for the rebate. So what they'll do is then they'll, they'll say, okay, we really want this $500 rebate. If there's 100,000 patients in that health plan who are gonna take this drug and you can get them up to 30% market share, you're gonna get $50 million check. There's big money involved. So what the, what the pharmacy benefit manager then does is, okay, we wanna get this new drug up to 30% market share. We're gonna slap restrictions or higher copays on the existing arthritis drugs so that patients are gonna switch and doctors are gonna to wanna to switch. We're gonna eliminate the paperwork requirements for the doctor, for example. And if I, we'll put a prior approval uh, demand on any of the older drugs that are on the formulary so that the new drug can easily get prescribed without any restrictions. And the salespeople for the new drug manufacturer will go out to doctors and say, our drug is now available without restriction. So if you prescribe it, you won't have to fill any paperwork. So they'll drive up the market share of this new drug, the, the pharmacy benefit manager will. And after a qu one quarter, if they get to 30% market share, the pharmacy benefit manager will then send the drug manufacturer an invoice and say, here's an Excel spreadsheet that shows we're up to 30% market share. Please write us a check for $500 for every prescription we got uh, uh, written for your drug. There's a huge amount of money that, uh, as I point out in the paper, Rebates now are averaging about 48% of the sticker price of a drug. So if the sticker price is $1,000, they're rebating back $480 on that potential prescription. So there's huge money, hundreds of billions of dollars are involved. But I don't think patients understand that many times when their drug is restricted or their doctor can't get through the paperwork that, that's been put on the, on the drug, the reason they're doing that, that happens is because the, the, uh, the PBM is trying to move market share to a drug that's going to pay them generous rebates. Um, so, so, Bill, you've, you've laid out a lot of uh, complex uh, incentives, right? Uh, right. There's incentives. Uh, the PBM has an incentive to move patients one way or doctors one way. The drug manufacturers actually want people to buy their drugs. Uh, but uh, ultimately, um, this podcast is concerned with consumers and how they can most benefit uh, this sounds a lot like uh, the PBMs and the uh, drug companies are colluding to artificially inflate prices rather than what their intended uh, goal would be to reduce prices. Why, why don't the PBMs simply uh, say, look, we've got generic, we've got you know, something tried and true, we know what it costs uh, because uh, it's a competitive market, those costs are relatively low compared with a brand new drug. Why would a PBM move off of their their sort of standard? Well, the, the simple answer is they're getting billions and billions of dollars in rebate payments from drug companies who want to get their drugs preferred. Um, drug companies are buying their way onto health plan formularies by paying rebates. Now, that sounds very dastardly, and in some senses it's not, because 
any, it's a common and appropriate business practice to give discounts to good customers. You know, if you're a local business that buys 20 pickup trucks a year and you go to a local car dealer, that dealer is probably going to give you a discount on the 20 that you buy this year. And so there's, there, in a certain way, these rebates are not inappropriate, but they've grown so large and they've become such an important part of this market. There are distortions that have happened. So for example, one of the distortions is if you're heavy, the drug companies can put out a high sticker price for a drug knowing they're going to rebate back a good portion of that. So list prices or sticker prices have been growing at an enormous rate. And those are related to the number of rebate payments that, that go back. And if you're a patient and you have a high deductible health plan, for example, you're not going to get the discount that's been negotiated by your health plan. You're going to pay cash for the sticker price, which in this case is many times 50% higher. So consumers are not benefiting from these discounts in the way that the health plans are, which is, which is problematic. And it also may be the case that, that consumers get jerked around by the PBM and switched from one drug to another because the PBM is trying to maximize their rebate levels. And, you know, in my view, the, the patient should get the, doc, the, the drug that their doctor really wants them to have and it's working well for them and not be switched because a PBM may be getting generous PB, uh, uh, rebate payments. So there are problematic aspects, to, which is what I tried to bring out in the paper. There are problematic aspects of this growth in rebates, um, which causes the PBMs, again, to steer patients towards certain drugs, not necessarily because they're therapeutically better, but maybe because they're getting a high rebate payment. And, uh, and, and that's the problem. And it's all very opaque. Nobody knows the reason why they might be steered from one drug to another. So I wrote this paper really to just cast some sunlight on this rebate system so that a patient, if he, if he or she is switched to a different drug and they're perfectly happy with that drug, the, the previous drug that they were switched off, they should fight to keep that drug. Um, they should they should work with their health plans and say no 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 my doctor wants me to have this. Um, so yeah, Bill, I do appreciate that the paper was intentionally um, uh, aware of how complex the issue is and did not come down one way or the other to say PBMs or drug companies or you know anyone is to blame quote unquote to blame. Uh, it is if anything, it's a thought piece uh, that invites uh, people to think more about this particular issue. I want to get back to some concept you had very early on when you were talking about the new drug being introduced. You just said uh, it may or may not be uh, better than the one it replaces. It may just simply offer the PBM an, an attractive rebate. Um, uh, forgive me, how do we measure better when we're talking about a new drug? And if it's 5% uh, more effective and 100% more expensive, who uh, makes those uh, trade-offs? I'd like to introduce the concept of value versus price or cost. Yeah, very good question. And, and uh, basically, uh, the clinical trials will determine when a drug is safer or more effective. Um, there'll be data that come out of the trials that say uh, patients didn't get this side effect, this adverse side effect that the older drugs, um, they tend to get with the older drugs. Or it reduced pain by 10% more uh, as, as indicated by the patients in the clinical trial. So the effectiveness and safety standards are built into the clinical trials. That said, what you're looking at is a huge number of patients in a clinical trial and 
a drug that, that's new that proved itself 10% more effective in a clinical trial may not be more effective for you as an individual. An older drug may be perfectly good, may even work better, and you may have fewer side effects. But patients are, are all different. Their genetic makeups are different. They respond differently to different drugs. So even if you prove in a clinical trial that your drug is 10% more effective, there may be patients where it's not 10% more effective. There may be patients where it's 10% less effective. Um, and so the rebate payments end up skewing, skewing this whole decision about which is the therapeutically most effective drug. Um, and, you know, again, I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a free market person. I'm not, I'm not advocating that we, we restrict PBMs uh, and restrict these business practices. But I, I think patients should be aware that if you're on a good drug and it's working well for you, try to avoid getting switched off of it because you don't know the reason why your health plan is trying to switch you to another drug. Okay, let's go deeper into the uh, the individual consumer. Again, we both are uh, fond of the power of markets to make things good, cheap, and abundant. Um, so I'm a consumer. I've been prescribed a new drug. I have arthritis, and my current uh, therapy is, is working well, and suddenly I'm, I'm asked to choose a new drug. What can I do to push back? Uh, do I work with my doctor? Do I work with my insurance company? Do I work with my pharmacist? Um, where do I say, look, uh, I, I, I'm... I, I liked drug A, you're telling me to, to choose drug B. Um, what do I do to push back? Well, chances are you have to work with your doctor. Uh, what might happen is that they might require your doctor to fill out prior approval paperwork or some kind of paperwork and submit it to say, to submit it to the health plan and to the PBM to say this, this patient needs to be an exception to your formulary and needs this, this particular drug. Now, in some cases, there's maybe nothing you can do about it. In some cases, they may just have a higher copayment for your drug. Your drug may have a $50 copayment, and the new drug they want to switch you to may have a $20 copayment. Um, and in, the, in those cases, you just have to make a decision. Do I have to pay the, do I pay the higher copay? Do I try out the new drug, see how well it works for me, and then switch back if it doesn't work well? Um, so it, it varies in the situation. There are all sorts of tactics that PBMs use to steer patients to different drugs higher co-pays, prior approval requirements, all sorts of restrictions like that. And you just have to work through them individually. Uh, and your doctor, I think, you can work with your pharmacist also, but your doctor is probably the one that's going to be most helpful in getting you the right drug if you really feel strongly about it. Uh, Bill, if, if you and I and our listeners understand sort of the, the complexity of, of mixed, I'm going to call them perverse, but mixed incentives, why aren't doctors uh, more resistant to this sort of manipulation of drugs? They know the efficacy or they know how to understand the, the data on a, a given drug. And yet they are sort of, in a sense, artificially encouraged to uh, choose drug A over drug B. They're the doctor. You're their patient. They understand how effective the therapy has been or the drug has been. Uh, why aren't they resistant to trying something new? Uh, you know, it ain't broke. Why, why are they allowing uh, the PBM to fix it? Well, they, they actually are resistant. Those physicians are, uh, really have had it up to their eyeballs with these kind of restrictions. Um, and you'll see in some very serious therapeutic areas like oncology, the, uh, uh, the oncology associations of uh, physicians are extremely active in opposing PBM tactics. They want to be able to switch patients to different drugs and experiment with different drugs in the, uh, that treat cancer in a, in, without the paperwork requirements and all the other requirements that PBMs are slapping. So that the, the physicians and the PBMs 
particularly in very serious therapeutic areas, are at loggerheads over some of these things. Um, anybody who knows an oncologist knows that they, they're going to try a million things and they want to be able to try it swiftly and without paperwork requirements and without interference. Let's try different therapies to work for patients because patients are very different. The cancers are very different. The genetic makeups of the patients are very different. So let's experiment with a lot of different drugs. And they are, as I said, they are at loggerheads with PBMs and they regularly put out press releases criticizing PBM tactics. Um, so the physicians are quite active on this. Um, so as believers in markets, uh, and markets always find a way, uh, is there a way that, um, again, if we're talking about oncology, a little more serious than uh, arthritis perhaps, uh, what could informed consumers do to sort of sidestep these uh, uh, odd uh, incentives? Are there uh, plans or, or uh, regimens or programs whereby if I've got cancer and I want to have a doctor who is not incentivized away from what he considers to be good therapies or good drugs, where would I go? Or am I, am I stuck with this system? Well, to a certain degree, you're stuck with it. I mean, the only advice I can give, just as in any consumer purchasing any item in the marketplace, is to be extremely informed. Just know what, what's the best therapy that's going to work for me. Read it, read it up on it. And talk to your doctor about it. And if you're, you end up getting steered by the PBM in a different direction, you have to fight it. There's just uh, particularly if you have a serious condition. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know what other advice to give other than that. Uh, you just learn about your condition, learn about what the best therapies are, and then fight for them. Are there particular uh, drugs that are rampant with this kind of um, manipulation or particular types of, uh, you, you, in your paper, you make a distinction between small molecules and big molecules. I don't want to get too wonky on hub wonk. I want yep. to, uh, um, respect the listener's, uh, understanding. Uh, but in small molecules, generics seem to be, uh, a, a fairly good substitute, right? They can easily be copied. Many large molecules. Right. And large molecules, it's, uh, they're biosimilars. Uh, so they're similar. They're not the same because, uh, no one can, uh, design like a new fingerprint or a snowflake or something, you have to, uh, uh, it costs a lot to reproduce. Um, what's the delta between, let's say, uh, small molecule and big molecule uh, discounts? Where, uh, where is it? So a small molecule, again, not to be too wonky, a small molecule medicine is typically the one you'd get in a plastic bottle at the pharmacy and it'd be a little pill and you, you'd take it. And once the patent expires on a branded small molecule drug, they're easy to copy. A generic company can make it for pennies. So the prices might drop 99%. It may go from $100 to a pennies when it, when it goes generic. Large molecules may or, not, may, or not, may or may not be found in a pill form. It could be an injection. It could be something. And it, large molecule just means that it's very complex molecule they have to put together when they manufacture it. And so it's more expensive to manufacture, unlike the small molecules. So when, when the patent expires on a large molecule drug, they're not as easy to copy. Um, they're harder to copy, and they're more expensive to copy. So the discounts on a, on a large molecule drug can't go 90%. They might be 25% or, or in that range uh, because the manufacturing costs are so high. Um, and that, what that means is that when the patents expire, branded companies can play games with rebates to make sure that the new generic biosimilar drug doesn't get market traction. They can discount more than 25% to make sure that their branded drug stays on the market. Now, in some sense, that, that may not be problematic. Look, if you're 
discounting your drug 30%, maybe it should be the preferred drug. Um, but it's, you know, for a patient that is doing well, uh, for example, on a biosimilar, uh, he doesn't want to get switched back to the branded drug uh, just because the, the company is offering a rebate. Uh, he may want to stick with the biosimilar. And so, you know, my advice in the paper is just health plans should have flexibility for physicians because the patients are going to react differently and they should make a lot of these drugs widely available without restriction and let the doctor and the patient decide which one, which drug that they should be on. I think you won't have much pushback on that. Uh, give, uh, make the decision the consumer and, the, and his trusted advisor, his, his doctor, uh, rather than the PBM or the pharma, uh, pharma company. Exactly. Uh, I want to uh, pivot. Uh, it's remarkable. We've had a healthcare uh, d- a conversation here. Now it's in early September and we haven't used the C word, the COVID-19. So <laughs> if, if you'll bear with me, I, I, I want to tap into some of your expertise here. Uh, we don't know where a vaccine is coming from, uh, but we know, we hope, uh, one is on the horizon. So I would like to uh, relate our uh, conversation about price and costs and incentives to the concept of vaccines. When, when a vaccine is available, and we don't know from where it's coming, um, what will it cost? Who will pay that cost? And what's the right answer for those two questions, meaning uh, we will decide on either free or very expensive for the vaccine. Uh, we will pay some company to produce that for us. Uh, someone will get the bill. Uh, what do you see happening? Uh, and what do you think about how, you, how it's all shaking out? Well, my guess is the, the government is going to pay for all vaccines and make them widely available and free. I mean, they're going to have difficulty getting people to, to agree to a vaccine in the first place. So there shouldn't be a cost obstacle preventing people from getting vaccines. So I, my guess is the government's going to pay for it. And I, I, I've read that there are already contracts in place to pay $50, $75. It's been in that range uh, that the government will pay per vaccine. And, and I generally think that's a pretty good price. I, I don't think the drug companies should make a huge profit on the, on the COVID uh, therapies or, um, or vaccines. They're, they're very wealthy industry. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're doing it as a social good. And many of these companies have stepped up in a big way and invested huge amounts of money. They're manufacturing the vaccines at risk, for example. So they're manufacturing it even not knowing that it's going to get approved and, and investing hundreds of million dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in these factories. There have been some politicians, Chuck Schumer is one, for example, who said we should, you know, these companies should charge almost nothing for these vaccines. And what worries me about that political position is that if the companies are not even going to break even, what happens if there's another pandemic? You know, we've had a huge number of companies step up to create therapies and vaccines and knowing that they're not going to make that much money on these these therapies. If there's another pandemic and, and they've ratcheted down the price so that all of these therapies that go on the market for COVID lose money, are we going to have the same number of companies step up the next time and do what they've done this time? Um, I, I just, again, I don't think they should make exorbitant profits, but I don't think they should also take a huge loss um, uh, because a politician wants to claim that they're getting the vaccine for free. Um, I, I just would like to keep some incentive in place for companies to step up again if we face another one of these situations. So given uh, uh, pharma, the vaccine producers can either make zero and or lose money or, or actually break even, you're sort of prescribing some sort of 
uh, ballpark break-even point um, or uh, make a, a fortune, uh, you, you choose the middle path and you say, okay, so as to incentivize future companies to produce future vaccines for future pandemics, we need to provide at least a break-even compensation for these quote-unquote free vaccines that will be distributed and paid for by the government. Yes, if the taxpayers are going to pay for it, we should at least let the companies break even. They shouldn't be able to make exorbitant profits, but they also shouldn't take big losses. I, you know, you want you want them to be in the game when when a pandemic arises, and uh, I think that would keep them in the game. They, I, I don't think any of these companies are thinking they're going to make a huge profit on on COVID uh, vaccines uh, or therapies. Um, they just, I, I just want to keep the incentives in place where they'll come back to the table again. Right. So, and and to tie the the show together, we get we're running out of time. But uh, there is no sort of uh, intermediaries in this situation. There's no PBMs of vaccines. I'm 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 guessing uh, uh, we'll all get the vaccine that's most appropriate. And there's no uh, pushing back or, or talking with our doctor as to which vaccine might be most appropriate for us. As far as you know. As far as I know, the government's going to write a contract with the manufacturers and pay them directly for each prescription of the vaccine. So. Uh, the PBMs and the rebates and all the issues we've been talking about, which are opaque to patients, are not going to be in, in play with vaccines, is my guess, my strong guess. And for the last question, uh, you mentioned that you think it may be difficult to persuade people to take the vaccine. Uh, what you're implying is the supply of vaccine, once it arrives, will exceed the demand, meaning we'll have more vaccine than we have people who want to take a vaccine. Say more about that. Why is it that, given this has been a, a pandemic that uh, has dominated our lives for the last six plus months, why would someone not take a vaccine? Well, I'm a great believer in vaccines. I work for a pharma company that uh, produced vaccines that are, that are amazing. I mean, uh, uh, Pfizer had a, has a vaccine called Prevnar 13, which uh, if you take it is going to prevent you from getting pneumonia as an older person. So they recommend that people over 60 take Prevnar 13 and it, it works quite well. Uh, and pneumonia is a killer to elderly people. So this is a this is a godsend, and it's proven to be safe and effective. And so I'm a believer in vaccines, but there are a lot of people that are not. You know, there are conspiracy theories out there about the COVID vaccine that it's a it's an attempt by Bill Gates to insert a chip in your brain. And oh, there's all sorts of wacky theories. There are people who just genuinely don't think vaccines are a good thing. That they're bad bad uh, unhealthy elements that that are put into the vaccines that are going to hurt you. So there's, there's a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines. I, I, I personally would sign up for a clinical trial for a vaccine. I think they, once they do phase one and phase two, they know that the vaccine is going to be safe and have, have mild side effects. Um, but there are a lot of people that don't agree with me. And, I, you know, I, I, they're people of good faith. But, um, you know, I, I think when it comes to this particular pandemic, people should think very seriously about going and getting vaccinated because uh, if they, they prove that the, the vaccine is safe and effective, it's going to be a very, it's going to be a great social good. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I'm a lover of liberty as well, uh, but I'd rather have a vaccine than wear a mask for the rest of my life. Just yeah, I'm not going to demand, I, I wouldn't advise the government to require people to go out and get right. vaccinated. Of course. But, but there should be a very healthy public affairs campaign by the government to say, look, we need to get rid of this pandemic. And this has proven safe and effective in 30,000 patients over the course of eight months. Uh, no patient died from side effects. No patients got bad side effects. Uh, so please go out and get vaccinated. And, and hopefully people will. will do it. 
um, as a, you know, as a matter of uh, their own social conscience. Well, that sounds like a topic for a future podcast, a future Hubwonk. So when we do have a vaccine, I hope you'll come on and help to explore the pros and cons of using it um, and uh, help allay some concerns that some of our listeners have about uh, vaccines in general. So I don't want to go too far down there. Uh, when we have it, we'll talk about it. So thank you for being on uh, Hubwonk again, Bill. Uh, this has been very informative. Joe, uh, my pleasure. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are three ways you can support us. Uh, you can give us a five-star rating. You can offer a review. And of course, you can share it with others. You're welcome to subscribe to the show so that each Tuesday at 11, a new episode will be downloaded to your computer. If you have questions or comments or suggestions for new shows from me, I can be reached at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.